Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. How you doing? Well, uh, I don't know if you know, but things are different here on the platform than normal. So uh, just want to kind of put this out there at the beginning and you can think about it. You and I, we tend to live a merit-based life while we participate in a grace-based faith. I'm going to say it again. We tend to live a merit-based life while we participate in a grace-based faith. You wouldn't think that just talking about the grace of God would be controversial. You wouldn't think that like, it would inspire theological arguments or discussion. But it turns out the subject of grace is a big deal. It creates a lot of energy around it. And part of the reason it creates so much energy around it is because a lot of you are raised like I was raised. And that was, we were raised with a work ethic. Yeah. My dad knew nothing about child labor laws. (laughs) Didn't understand them, didn't care about them. Believed that hard work was good for you. And if you hurt yourself in the process, you learned something along the way. And so I grew up, and that makes sense. My dad grew up in a very poor family. He went to work while he was still in high school to support his family. Not a single amen at that. I, I mean, imagine a kid in high school going to work to contribute money. You go, get where I'm going here? To the family. Still, still no amens at all. Got the high school kids here, and they're like, yeah, that ain't happening. No, I ain't doing it. And it's harder now than it was. I mean, you know, the people would give you jobs back then, and they would pay you, and you could contribute in some way and plus it just was easier it was just simpler life there weren't cell phones or internet or any of the other myriad of expenses that it takes just to operate your own life much less anybody else's so i grew up and i grew up believing that and being taught that if you work hard everything will work out and that fit very nicely into our ideal as a country, as Western people, not just in the United States, but all really Western thinking. We're all Neoplatonists. We have been for a long time. And in that process, our collective, our cultural psychology, our cultural philosophy is that if you work hard, you get stuff. And so we carry that right into the church. We carry it right into the idea of grace. And then what happens to us as we celebrate grace is we really, underneath it all, we appreciate grace, but we really believe that we're earning some stuff. And then we have all kinds of theologies that help play into that. So, so for example, when, when the Scripture says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and He will give you the desires of your heart. We're like, well, there you go. I'm going to get some stuff from God. I'm going to do some stuff. And I'm going to con- contractually obligate God to give me some stuff. And we, and we live in this meritocracy. We, we, we practice it. Preachers preach it. Give God a dollar. Write your check of seed faith. 
and God will cause you to be wealthy and have abundance. And sometimes we, when we think about our own inner world, our own spiritual journey, how we're doing psychologically, emotionally, we have to admit this. I'm a little angry. Because I don't know if verses like this make you angry, but how about this one? You will reap what you sow. Ha! <laughs> How's that working out for everybody? Everybody feel like you're reaping what you're sowing? Some of us are reaping things we didn't sow. We're getting a better deal than we deserve. Amen. All of us at some level are. There's somebody in our life right now that would say to you, hey, you're getting, if you got what you deserved. But for most of us, like here's the place, like, I don't know, if, you, if you're a caregiver, you know, a person that likes to give care, then you sort of assume that at some point you're setting a good example and other people will learn from you and then they will give back. The rule of reciprocity. I can hear you, by the way. I, I can't hear you people on the internet. It turns out you're not much quieter than the people in the room. So here's this reality, you know, that, that, that this sense that if you're a caregiver, you keep thinking, I'm going to keep giving care, and then everybody's going to learn to give back, and we're just going to have be one big family of caregivers, and we're all going to give to each other. But we all know that's not how it works. If you're a caregiver, it turns out you attract caretakers. <laughs> this is how it works. Like every caregiver can handle about 10 caretakers. And that's just how it works. That never changes. And this, and this is where Jesus spoke these words. He spoke these words in a context that says, if you want to be a servant to everybody, guess what? You will reap what you sow. If you serve, people will let you serve more and more and more. You'll get more and more chances to serve. Amen? But we get this stuff messed up in our heads. And we start to live a merit-based life in a faith-based, or in a grace-based faith. And it creates issues. And it's controversial to talk about grace. Viktor Frankl came to the United States post-World War II. He was a prisoner of war during World War II. Wrote a great book called uh, Man's Search for Meaning. And uh, he, he made this observation after being in our culture for a little while. I recommend that a statue of responsibility be put on the left coast in order to offset the Statue of Liberty, which resides on the east coast. And his observation was simply this, that people in this country celebrate freedoms, but they don't always take seriously responsibility. Amen. And we transfer that into the church. So when you talk about grace, people are like, don't be, don't be throwing that grace around in here. That's all crazy grace. Let's talk responsibility. Let's talk about how we're supposed to behave. Let's talk about that for a little while. And then here's what happens to us. God's great desire and plan is that he pours out his grace. Grace is defined by the unmerited favor of God. And once God has poured out his unmerited favor, and you've been the recipient of this amazing gift, then you go practice grace in the life of others. When you live in a meritocracy, we believe we've earned something, and therefore we're mad at other people who aren't earning it as well as we are. Okay, that's uncomfortable and awkward on the same <laughs> And what makes this hard is that there's another concept in Scripture. It's not just about grace. There's also the concept of covenant. And in the concept of covenant, we, we have this idea in which God says, I have a part to play. 
and you have a part to play, and together we'll do something great in the world. Articulated first and most clearly with Abraham in the original covenant. Abraham, walk before me and be blameless, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And this concept exists, this concept of covenant. Go be obedient. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. We have something to do, but it begins in grace. It begins with God pouring out favor on us. And then we're invited into this other place of covenant. But the covenant doesn't mean we're earning stuff. Sometimes we believe if we do what God wants, we are contractually obligating God to give us something. How's that working out for everybody? Because God doesn't practice a one-for-one relationship between what we do and what He does. There is a mystery. His ways are higher than our ways, and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we don't always get it. We don't always understand it. So I would guess this morning, online, in the room, there's a lot of us who have an understanding of earning our way. We have an understanding of bargaining with God. We carry around shame inside of our hearts. Like, like we're shocked that we need grace. Like God set up the whole system going, guess what? You're human and you will fail. And here's what you're going to need. Grace. You're going to need some grace. Amen. Thank you. That was a good, hearty amen. And the truth of that is when we stop and we contemplate the celebration of grace, it seems like if we let it distill down, that anybody who gets quiet long enough to set aside the meritocracy, to set aside the whole idea that I'm earning something, that instead I'm a fallible human being who is desperately in need of the grace of God and who finds it poured out freely on me. Then we write words like this, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. We, we, we write, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord. That's a, that's a psalm of grace. Amen. Grace, 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 grace upon grace. And some of us in this room, some of us listening right now, you need to take a deep breath and let the grace of God envelop you. Just for a minute, let go of the meritocracy. Just for a minute, stop earning. Stop bargaining. Stop filling the shame. Just know that this is a place of grace. Real grace. The unmerited favor of God. And for some of us, we're worked up we got a lot going on inside of our hearts and inside of our minds and inside of our spirits. And somewhere in there, we ought to take a deep breath. Jesus told this story in Luke 15. There were a bunch of tax collectors who got together, and he was meeting with them and having dinner with them. And the Pharisees were grumbling about the fact that he was hanging out with these people who had not earned the same kind of righteousness that they had earned. And so Jesus tells the story. There was a man who had a hundred sheep. 
and one of them, 99, were safe, but one was lost. Will he not go in search of the one lost sheep? And when he finds the one lost sheep, will he not celebrate? And here's the thing about the church. Most of us think of ourselves as the 99 sheep, the 99 sheep that are mad because we didn't wander off. <laughs> We're mad because we, we didn't mess it up. And who do those people think they are? They got a whole party thrown for them just because they got lost and found again. Amen? And if you think that's a, a, you know, I'm weirding out the story for you, you know what the next story is? It's a prodigal son. And what happens with the prodigal son? The son disappears, he goes, he lives on wild, he goes crazy, he goes completely berserk with his father's money, all his father's resources. And you know when he comes home? When he runs out of money. He doesn't come home because he had a moment, he doesn't have an epiphany, he doesn't, he doesn't go, oh, I feel so bad. He comes home when he's eaten with the pigs and he's out of money. And all of his friends have abandoned him. That's when he comes home. And when he comes home, who's waiting? While he was still a long way off, the father saw him and he ran to him and he put the royal robe around his shoulders. He slipped the royal wing on his finger. And he said, my son who is dead is now alive. Kill the fatted calf. And his brother, who had not left home, who had lived in the meritocracy for his whole life, done exactly what he was supposed to do, got up every morning before daybreak, fed the chickens, mucked out the cow pen. Ask your neighbor if you don't know what that means. Was angered because he didn't earn it. And Jesus is articulating this reality. Listen, this is what goes on in the life of faith, in a, in a faith-based, grace-based faith. This is what goes on. Yes, it's grace, but I'm earning. And underneath, I'm not getting what I deserve, and I'm a little angry about it. And I know that I need grace, but I'm not really that generous in offering grace. I believe once I've gotten grace and gotten in, now I've earned some stuff. I'm pretty sure God owes me. Too much? Too strong? Because I will say this. We are living in a culture today that lacks grace. We have almost zero grace for the humanity around us. I, I wish I could, I wish I got a dollar for every time somebody said, well, you know what? People are crazy. I, I must hear that 20 times a day. I mean, you couldn't live on it, but you could buy amber. Yeah. In and out. We are recipients of grace. We're to pour out grace. We don't even do this in our own homes. We don't even pour out grace on our parents or our children or our siblings or our in-laws. We, 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 we can't stop and think for a moment about how God has poured out grace on us. And we're supposed to be the conduit through this grace, through which this grace flows. As I have a new command I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. By this will all people know that you are my disciples, by your love one for another. Not by your merit, not by your purity, not by your holiness, not by your rule keeping, not by your earning, not by your piety. Not by how many times a day you pray. Prayer's good. And in covenant, it's not we're earning something. It's that God is saying, listen, in covenant, I want you to live healthy. I want you to live whole. I want you to have good relationships with each other. Here's the reward. Live well and good things happen. Not one for one, but overall. If you live this way, your life will go better than if you live a different way. 
And God pours out his grace. Isaac Watt was born in 1674. If you're keeping up with world history, you know that we've jumped now 100 years post-Reformation, and some things have happened. So Martin Luther nails the 95 Theses to the door in 1517. We have the Great Reformation. Lutheranism rises in Germany. Well, in the ensuing 100 years, a lot of stuff happens. Presbyterians get involved. The Baptists and the Anabaptists get involved. We have a move called Protestantism. And the, and the rise of Protestantism in the 16th and 17th century is this epic thing that goes on and has massive ramifications. Well, meanwhile, over in England, about the same time that the Protestantism is rising in uh, the eastern part of Europe, Middle Europe and Eastern Europe, that over in England, some other things are going. Namely, Henry VIII has decided that he wants to divorce his wife and the Pope says no. Well, the Reformation has so damaged the power of the papacy that King Henry VIII just says, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll start my own church. <laughs> so he does. And Anglicanism is born. And after Henry dies, we have this tug of war that goes on between his children and the heirs. We have Mary, Queen of Scots, who comes, Bloody Mary, and she purges uh, the monarchy of all of those who are not loyal to Catholicism. And then uh, she is ousted, and, and uh, we, we have this tug of war. Finally, at the end of the 16th century, King James comes to power, and he solidifies Anglicanism, and he commissions the translation of a Bible that you know as the King James Version of the Bible. And Isaac Watts born in 1674. He's born later in the 17th century. As a young boy, he was brilliant. By the age of four, he was already learning Latin. By the age of nine, he had mastered Greek. By 11, he had mastered French. By 13, he had mastered Hebrew. He was a sought-after student, and he was offered the best positions at Cambridge and Oxford, the two premier universities in the UK at the time. However, he was born to a family of dissenters. Now, the dissenters were an interesting group. They were the folks, and, and we could go into all of the language. We won't, because I can tell you're already bored with the history that we're doing. But we could go into all the story of who the Puritans were and who the Separatists were and how the Pilgrims became the Pilgrims and how they ended up on the Mayflower. It all is around this same thing that's going on, the rise of Anglicanism and its separation from Catholicism. So the Puritans wanted to purify the church. They weren't a radically moral group of people. They weren't killjoys. They weren't people that never had any fun. They just wanted to purify the Church of England of all of its Catholic roots, just so you know. The separatists wanted to be separate. They wanted to have their own thing. They wanted to be independent from the Church of England. And in that, they were dissenters. They said, I don't want to be a part of the church. When Isaac Watt was born, his father was in prison because he was a dissenter. He was not cooperating with the Church of England. And so Isaac Watts grew up in that environment. At the age of 16, he decided not to go to Oxford or Cambridge. Instead, he decided to go to a dissenter's college, a small college. He complained very often to his father about the state of singing in the church. That, in fact, he said that people who, you know, came to church and sang... Uh, did so without a great deal of joy. It was almost like you couldn't really tell that they were singing about grace and celebrating and, um, you know, things like that. This is what he said, to quote, to see the dull indifference, the negligent and thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of a whole assembly while the psalm is upon their lips, 
It might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of their inward religion. <laughs> and so his dad said to him, well, if you don't like it, why don't you fix it? And so at the age of 18, he wrote his very first hymn. The title of that hymn was Behold the Glories of the Lamb. Isaac Watt would go on to become known as the father of English hymnody. He wrote dozens and dozens and dozens of hymns. Upon graduation, he, in 1701, he became the pastor of Mark Lane Congregationalist Church, one of the leading dissenter churches in England at the time. And he would serve there for the next 11 years. Increasingly during that time, his health, psychologically speaking, was deteriorating. You know, we get glimpses of this back in history. We just don't always call it so what it is. But we can look back now and we can say that Isaac Watts suffered from debilitating anxiety and depression. And so in 1712, he left the pastorate and he went to live in a small secluded cabin on the estate of a friend of his family's. And he remained there the rest of his life. He continued to write beautiful hymns. I, I think it's so powerful to stop and think about this. That a person who couldn't do the outward things and earn. Couldn't get up and go to work every day and do the things that would make you think. That God opened something in him that allowed him to see and write and articulate beauty. And poetry. And so very often the grace of God. Powerful hymns. Like joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. And like the hymn we sang this morning, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my greatest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. That these words, and, and just so you know, just, just so you kind of get your brain around it, would you believe that to sing Isaac Watts' hymns in the 17th and 18th century was controversial? That more than one church split over singing or not singing the hymns of Isaac Watts? That there was a coined phrase going around, Isaac's whims. <laughs> Pastors were fired because they chose to sing these hymns. They chose to participate in this new movement. Because Isaac said, here's the thing. We sing the Psalms, but people don't know what they mean. They're not connected to the message. They're not celebrating. They're just singing words. Their spirit, their heart, their mind is not connected to... We're talking grace. We're talking about the celebration of grace. And so he said, if I have to bring the illusion down... I'm trying to do this, he said. I'm just trying to imagine if David wrote the Psalm today, what words would he have used to convey to this culture the message of grace? and love, and the truth. So for you and I, the, I just wonder, have we lived in a meritocracy in such a way that, that we don't necessarily feel the joy of the grace? And because we don't feel the joy of the grace, we're hard on people. And we are, aren't we? You don't think so? Right down at the bottom of this street is a four-way stop. One of those stop signs is in the parking lot of Trader Joe's. Yeah. This has to be against the law. <laughs> if you want to test the reality of our grace for one another, drive your car down there. Stop at that four-way stop and see what happens. Just see how long you last. Just see how long before something creeps up inside of you 
and causes you to want to cause pain to another human being. <laughs> Watts, who was reading Paul's writing, came across two passages of Scripture that impacted him. Paul, who demonstrates for us this reality of what it means to live a merit-based life in a grace-based faith, who earned his way for everything he did, but came to an abrupt encounter with the grace of God on a road to Damascus with a bright light from heaven. So that after that moment, he would write words like this, Philippians 3, 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Galatians 6, 14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It was that passage of Scripture in Galatians that actually inspired Isaac Watt in 1707 to write the words when I survey. Listen to them again. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Can I ask you this morning this question? If I were to invite you to a space in which you just took a deep breath... And you just told your brain to be quiet. And you just told your emotion and your heart to calm down. And you just said, all the things that I'm working on, all the things that I'm working out, all of my political opinions, all of my pandemic opinions, all of my thoughts about the way the world should work versus the way it does work, all of my thoughts about everything, it's above my pay grade. That, in fact, God has prepared good works for me to do in advance, and there's a place for me to engage in the covenant side of this. But before I get ready for the covenant side of this, whoever wants to be greatest among you should be the servant of all. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not think equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. That you and I are supposed to become servants in our covenant work. I don't know about you, but servants seem to have an attitude of humility, seem to have an attitude in which they are there to serve. They're not there to spew opinions, but we are called to do good works. But before we get over to that side of covenant and responsibility and engaging the kingdom of God and fighting for the cause of the kingdom of God, we have to receive the grace of God. And I'm guessing that there are people in this room right now that desperately need the grace of God. You just need to feel the unmerited favor of God. You don't have to earn 
You don't have to bargain. You don't have to feel shame. Shame and guilt are a funny thing, aren't they? I mean, we as the church use them as tools to, to motivate people. <laughs> as do you as parents and people. I mean, don't just look at me. Like, guilt and shame are like, well, I'm so sorry, God, that I'm human and I failed. And God's like, yeah, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah, I, I figured we'd get going and then you'd just sail. I figured, you know, we'd just like start and then boom, you'd grow up. You know? wow. So shame is that emotion that says, I can't believe I let you down, God. And God said, oh, I don't know if you know this, but I made provision for the fact that you would fail. And that you would fail sometimes because you were trying really hard, but you just blew it. And then other days you got up and you didn't try at all, and you blew it. And then some days you were mad, and so you just acted out. And then some days you were sad and you acted up. I, I don't know. But I do know this. You're going to need some grace. Amen. And I'm going to start there. And every time you need it, I'm going to provide it. And oh, by the way, as I pour out grace on you, I'd like for you to pour out a little on some other folks. And I'm guessing that we should quiet down and let the grace of God settle over us. Tiffany Hammer is a songwriter. A few months ago, she and a group of songwriters were sitting down and they were celebrating and thinking and praying around Exodus 14, 14. This is what it says. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. I'd just like for you to let that sink in. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. I don't know what you're fighting. I don't know where your battle is. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if it's emotional, relational, physical, cultural. We got enough battles on every front. They're real. They matter. Let this verse sink in. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. It fits in with the whole teaching. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? And God is in your story. Our story is not the story, but our story matters. We're a part of a bigger story. And today, this morning, as you think about it, the, the group that sat down, they began to write together, and they wrote the song that we sang earlier called Quiet. This is what Tiffany writes about it. When the world feels as if it's turned upside down, and each day brings a new gloomy outlook, it's difficult to know which voice to trust. We live in a world where the loudest voice is often the most heard. But God's voice is usually heard in the moments of stillness. She concludes, this song's an honest prayer between us and God, between people who desperately need to hear his voice. So the band's going to come back up, and we're going to sing this. And you sang it once. Maybe it's a new song to you. I'll tell you this. It's... It's not one of those rousing anthems that the whole congregation just gets on their feet and sings because the melody is kind of, you know, moving in a way that's sometimes hard to keep up with. So this is what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to sit back, and I want you to receive the grace of God.
I want you to let go of some battles. I want you to rest your mind and your heart and your spirit. I want you to remember that God will fight for you. You need only to be still. That there'll come a time and a day and a place for covenant and work and doing the good works of God. But before we can move forward, we start with grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. When I survey the wondrous cross, my greatest gain I count but loss. Just receive. Just let God love you. Just let him be in your story and in your spirit. God, will you help us? We'll jump in on a word or two. We'll sing along as we can. But would you just use these moments? Would you apportion grace to every single person as there is need? Whether they're here in the room, whether they're joining us online, whether they're joining us on Sunday morning or or on Thursday afternoon or wherever they are in the course of their week, would you take these moments to quiet everything down? So appropriate to sing a song called Quiet. Would you remind us that the story of your word is a story of grace? I pray now that you would apportion grace to each person as there is need. I pray it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said together, Amen. Receive. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.